Dan, why don't you come on up? And uh, we'll, in the first service, we had a little bit of a problem with the switch on his battery pack. So uh, we'll make it sure that that's wasn't working. It was the switch, before. it was the batteries you gave me, wasn't it? Or yeah, yeah that was it. You just didn't want me to talk. Uh, something like that. Uh, <laughs> Dan and I have been friends for much longer than either of us would like to admit. Uh, I've gone gray uh, in the length of time. And it's good to have you here, Dan. We're glad that you're with us. And I uh, look forward to the message this morning. Thanks so much, Micah. It's good to be here. You're going to want this. Yeah, probably. Yep. Good morning. It's good to be good to be here with you this morning, and uh, good to be back. If I look a little familiar to you, I was here a couple of years ago with a team of students from Grand Bay Baptist, and so we you hosted us for a week, and uh, we just had a great week joining you in ministry as we helped lead Vacation Bible Camp. Uh, we were involved, that was just, I think, in the early stages of when the Island Pregnancy Center had kind of taken possession of their space, and so we were moving out some old furniture from who had been there before, and uh, it was it was just so good. And we just, as I uh, now in this role, I now work with the CBAC as the director of youth and family, but I'm still attending that church, still involved in the lives of those students. And just the other week, we were talking about our time in Summerside, and just how much that you were an encouragement to us and to our students, and your hospitality, like. You guys were awesome, and so we just continue to thank you uh, for that. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so my name is Dan. I'm the director of Youth and Family with the CBAC, and I've been in this role for almost three months, and so brand new, and so it's been a lot of fun. Um, but today is, as Micah mentioned, today is our first stop on what we're calling our road trip. And so we are hosting forums around Atlantic Canada, meeting with people who are passionate, who are excited, who are concerned for next generation, what we call youth and children's ministries. And so this invitation is open to anyone, uh, whether you are a, a leader, a parent, grandparent, neighbor, if you have a heart for next generation ministry, we invite you to come so that we can hear from you. Uh, as we look to the next uh, phase of life in our department, as we look to resource and equip churches and leaders to reach the next generation for Jesus, we want to spend time listening to you and seeing what are the, what are the trends that you're seeing, what are, what are the ways that we can help you, what are the ways that we can kind of help provide some resources for you uh, in this way. So we would love to spend some time this afternoon uh, hearing from you as, as you share with us. A little bit about myself. I am not an islander by birth, but I like to try to pretend that I have, I've got some good island roots. And so my wife is from up west, and so from O'Leary Baptist. Her parents are Dana and Twyla Harris, if you know them. And so PEI is, in many ways, it feels like home to me. And so even as I was coming across the bridge last night, uh, it was just good to be on the island soil. And so it's good to be here and uh, just really appreciate your hospitality. Um, I have four kids, and I'll be mentioning some of them probably as the message goes on, because that's just... Uh, my three of my kids are in school and life is just crazy busy and I just feel like we're in that kind of that stage of life where we are just running all the time and driving kids from one activity to the next and with schools and everything like that. But um, it is good to be here. Uh, so this morning, what we're going to do, I want the message that I've kind of titled it More Than Brand Jesus, I want us to spend some time looking at discipleship, how we go deeper in our discipleship, how we build what I call resilient discipleship in our students and in our children, faith that lasts. And so we'll be talking about that idea. We'll be looking at a story of, from the life of Peter and his interactions with, with Christ. And then I also want to share some information with you about, uh, from, a, from a resource it's called Faith for Exiles. And so, but what it does is it's, it's a great book that walks through some of the things we need to be thinking about as we look to build faith that lasts in our youth and our students and our children and even in ourselves. And so I want to share some, a little bit of that with you as, as we continue to go on. 
But first, I want to introduce you to Christopher Clavius. He was a German mathematician. He was the lead astronomer for Pope Gregory XIII. And he was the one responsible for what we call the Gregorian calendar, which meant that uh, in the 1500s, astronomers were starting to realize that uh, the, the calendar was not really in sync anymore with what they called the lunar and the solar cycles. And so what that meant was that Easter was starting to get awfully close to summer. Christmas was starting to get awfully close to the spring. And so they wanted to make an adjustment to the calendar. So in October 1582, people went to bed on October 4th and they woke up on October 15th. And that didn't mean that they had an 11-day nap, but it just meant that the calendar changed while they were sleeping. And so they woke up and they had missed 10 days. And so that meant if your birthday was October 7th, you didn't get to celebrate your birthday. Um, but what that also meant was that that just created like this societal upheaval. And so there were actually riots as people, the, just the ripple effects of that change. Um, you know, people trying to figure, well, how do they get paid? And, and it just affected all kinds of things. And so there were actually riots in a number of cities in Europe. And this wasn't a change that happened universally. Uh, now, in, we all kind of use the Gregorian calendar, but it, it took place over actually centuries. And so there were early adopters but then uh, eventually more and more countries joined in, and, but it continued for a few centuries that, count, that uh, countries would actually have to like drop 10, and as they waited longer, there was one country I think had to drop 12 days from their calendar in order to catch up with the rest of society. But I think in a lot of ways, we probably feel like that, you know, even as a, even as a younger parent. Like, I feel like in some ways that the world has just changed so quickly. It kind of feels like in some ways, I went to sleep one night, and the, the world woke up, and it was different. And this week, we had, uh, in, uh, not an incident, but a situation with one of our kids. I live in a small town, and because of small town dynamics and French immersion and everything like that, my three kids who are in school all go to, th they're all in elementary school, but they all go to three different elementary schools, which means that we've got like three different bus times, uh, parent-teacher conferences. We had three Christmas concerts in December that we were trying to juggle and all that sort of stuff. But my oldest daughter, who's in grade five, going into middle school next year, um, she had a presentation come to her school this, this week that really pushed against a lot of the values that we hold as a family. And in a lot of ways, I really felt that this was not the place of the school system to be speaking into some of these values. And so I've had some really interesting dialogue with the principal and, and different things. But it just helped reinforce to me that the world that I'm trying to parent my children in is not even the same world that I was parented in, and that's only a generation ago. Things are changing. And as we think about what this means for the church, we need to be thinking about how do we build faith that lasts in our children and in our youth? How do we build resilient discipleship in our children and our youth so that they will be continuing to follow Jesus? Before coming into this role, I was a youth pastor for a long time. And for me, the, the driving question in my ministry was and still is, will, will my students, will the children still be following Jesus in 10 years? Will they, will they have a faith that lasts? And I think regardless of where we are in our church, we need to be asking these same kind of questions. You know, if you're called to be part of Summerside Baptist Church, you are called to be concerned about the faith development, the faith formation of the children and youth in your church. And so I think we all need to be asking ourselves the questions, will the youth and the children in our churches still be following Jesus in 10 years? And statistically, the answer is that most of them will not. But I don't think that has to be our story. 
And so I think we can be doing things in our churches, doing things in our ministries that can help change that narrative. And so, but I think that it requires us to be thinking deep, thinking hard, and thinking about the ways that we disciple our children and our youth. So I've, one of the books that I use a lot, I, I teach for Katie Divinity College. So part of the fun thing about my role is I get to work with both Micah and Jody in different ways. And so I use this book in one of my courses. It's called Faith for Exiles. And a quote from the book is, says that following Jesus is more than just believing the right things or feeling warm fuzzies about him. Being Christian is more than being on Team Jesus. It means we find the very essence of ourselves at his feet. And this is really what the heart of resilient discipleship or faith that last means, is that we find our identity in who Jesus says that we are. Um, our very sense of purpose, our identity is rooted in who Jesus Christ says that we are. And so it's, it's more than just saying that, yeah, I believe the right things, or I was baptized at this certain time, or I come to church on every Sunday morning, but it's actually having a life-changing uh, relationship with Jesus, a faith that lasts, a faith that endures, a faith that sustains us through um, the next 10 years. And so it means that we don't identify ourselves primarily by where we're from or what we look like, but it's that we identify ourselves by who Jesus says that we are. And so to help us think about this, I want us to look at a passage from Matthew chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 13. And uh, these are a series of conversations that really involve Peter and Jesus and some of the other disciples around him. Jesus and his disciples are, are, are walking as they do from location to location. And so when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, you, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, the Son of Man was a title in Jesus' day that had a lot of like end times meaning attached to it. And so it was a, a phrase that had come out of the book of Daniel and it really developed a lot of meaning throughout the, throughout the duration of the Old Testament and into the, what they call the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testaments. And so by the time Jesus is on the scene with his disciples, there's a lot of cultural expectation, there's a lot of buzz around what is the Son of Man, who is the Son of Man, when is the Son of Man going to come? And so there was a lot of expectation that the Son of Man was going to show up and, and this person was going to restore the nation of Israel. They were going to release them, set them free. Uh, the people of Israel were living under, living under foreign oppression. They had been conquered by the Roman Empire. And the people of Israel were looking for their freedom. They were looking to be released. And so they really saw the Son of Man as a title that went with that imagery, that expectation that someday they would be set free. And the other title that went with that was Messiah. And Jesus asked his disciples, but you, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And so in this moment, Peter is saying that, yeah, Jesus, we believe that you are the son of man. We believe that you are the Messiah. We believe that you are the one that we've been waiting for the one that our scriptures have been pointing to for centuries, the ones that our parents and our grandparents have been telling us to look for, we believe that's you. And Jesus continues and he says, but I also say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And he says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was his Messiah. 
From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. This flew in the face of what they were expecting the Messiah or the Son of Man to be doing. They thought he was going to come and raise an army and go and, and, and remove the Roman oppression from the nation of Israel, and they thought he was going to set up a kingdom and that they would be a, a powerful nation once again. And here Jesus is saying, that's not how it's going to go down. And so because this flies in the face of what Peter was expecting, this isn't the same story that Peter had grown up hearing. It was different than what he expected. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. I think poor Peter, like, it's only been like five minutes since he said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. And now here Jesus is calling him Satan. Like, man. But uh, Jesus didn't want Peter to distract him from his mission. He, Jesus knew what he had to be doing. And he was using this as an opportunity to correct Peter and help him see what the bigger picture was. So then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so in these moments, Jesus is unpacking for his disciples what a life of faith really looks like. I think for us, what a life of resilient faith, a faith that endures, a faith that lasts, really needs to look like. It's not maybe as easy as we've always made it seem like. It's not simply about saying a prayer and making a decision, but it's actually this lifelong commitment, this allegiance to who Jesus is. Um, a life of saying that I don't come first. We live in a culture that tells us all the time, you know, find your real you. The, the situation at my daughter's school this week, the kids were encouraged to find their true self and whatever their true self was, that's who they were supposed to be. That's the narrative, that's the story that our culture tells us all the time. And Jesus says, if you really want to find your true self, you need to throw it away and, and put others first. Follow me. Take up your cross. And the taking up the cross wasn't just an invitation to deal with the minor things that inconvenience you. It wasn't about, you know, waiting in line longer at A&W than you thought you needed to and that being the cross that you pick up. It's about, like, actually choosing death and actually saying, my life is secondary to what Jesus is calling me to do. Jesus is first. So as we look at faith formation out of this passage, a few things that I want us to, to reflect on is first that we see Peter confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. And this isn't simply just a verbal thing that, you, that Peter was doing, but he was actually giving his allegiance to Jesus. Faith is, is saying that our allegiance to Jesus comes first before any allegiance to a flag or a nation or a monarch or a politician our allegiance to Jesus is, our, is, is, is key. And so as Christians, for, for Peter to be saying that Jesus is Lord or Jesus is the Christ, in, in Roman culture, the only person who was Lord was Caesar. And so when Peter is saying things like Jesus is Lord, he's actually saying that means that Caesar is not. So it would be in the same way as us saying that Jesus is our prime minister, 
um, or Jesus as our king. You know, we, we place a higher value on Jesus leading us than we do on the prime minister or the monarch of our country. And so faith is about placing our allegiance to Jesus and, and recognizing that there's going to be times that we have to choose our allegiance. And as Christians, we need to be choosing Jesus first. Faith is also about experiencing Jesus, and we learn the ways of Jesus as we walk with him and as we hear our identity. And so we see that, G- that Peter is spending time walking with Jesus, that he is learning what it looks like to follow Jesus by being at the feet of Jesus and hearing him and having Jesus teach him. And so as we look to, have, uh, to build resilient faith in our students and in our children, we need to be providing them experiences that really help them see what Jesus is like. And that's one of the things that I really value and appreciate and, and am grateful to Summerside Baptist for, is that for the students that I brought here two years ago, you help provide an opportunity for them to experience Jesus in your midst, through your hospitality, through the ministry in your community, through the Vacation Bible Camp. Um, they, they really experienced Jesus, um, th- and, and thank you t- for your hospitality and helping accomplish that. And, and in the midst of experiencing Jesus and doing life with Jesus, we hear Jesus speaking his identity on us and, and hearing him say that you are my child. I have chosen you. I have rescued you. I have redeemed you. And so as we experience Jesus and as we take on that identity and, and recognize that what Jesus says about us is most important, that helps build that resilient faith. That helps build a faith that lasts. But we also see that Peter is being introduced here to the idea of self-sacrifice. And Peter's being told that he needs to be willing to pick up a cross, which in, in Peter's day, people didn't go around wearing crosses on their, around their necks. It wasn't a piece of jewelry. It was an instrument of torture. And so for Peter to be hearing to take up your cross and follow me, he recognized that that was an invitation to, to death. That was an invitation to say that his own desires, his own needs are secondary um, to what Jesus is calling him to do. So we discover life by choosing death. And in some way that is really hard to wrap our heads around when it comes down to it, we experience abundant life, fulfilling life, by following Jesus into death. And it is through the death of Christ, through our own death to ourself, that we experience the real, abundant, and fulfilling life that God has for each one of us in Jesus Christ. But what stands, one of the things that stands in the way, or what stands in the way of resilient discipleship or faith that lasts in our culture, I think, is shame. I think we live in a culture and a society that heaps shame on us. And we often talk about guilt, but we don't always do a great job of talking about shame. Guilt means that I have done something wrong, but shame says I am something wrong. And as I've been doing youth ministry for a long time, now as I'm parenting kids coming into youth ministry, I recognize that there is something about the world that we live in that raises our children and our youth in shame and so that they take on this identity. So they're no longer seeing the things that they do as bad, but it just becomes part of their identity that they are bad. This week, uh, I came across my Google News feed uh, uh, interview with Ben Affleck, and he was talking about the the impact of shame on his life and how that had derailed so many things in his life. And I appreciated this quote, and he says, the biggest regret of my life is this divorce. And it wrecked his marriage, wrecked his, his relationship with his kids. But he says, shame is really toxic. There is no positive byproduct of shame. 
It's just stewing in a toxic, hideous feeling of low self-worth and self-loathing. And that's the culture that we are raising our children and our youth in. And, and, I, and I don't know the answers. I don't know why this is, but I just see its effects all the time. As, I, as I'm working with students, as I see my kids and their friends, like it becomes very easy for them to say, I am bad because of the things that I've done. It's not that I've done anything bad. It's just that I am a bad person. And so... But I think there's great opportunity for us as Christians to reach into that and say that this isn't the message that we need to, that our students need to be telling on them, telling about themselves. Jesus has a better message for us, and we can speak into that and reshape their identity and help them see that they are not something bad because of the things that they've done or the situations that have happened to them, but they are God's masterpiece. I love Ephesians 2.10, and it's been a significant passage uh, for me in, in, in many ways. And uh, even this week when I was helping prepare my daughter for the presentation that was coming to her school, I took her out for breakfast and we had some good conversation. But I reminded her of these words too from Ephesians 2.10. And it says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And I think this is an important message for us, but I think it's an important message for our children and our youth too for them to realize that God has intended great things for them. Um, God had determined that regardless of their life situations, regardless of how they came to, this, to live on this planet, regardless of whatever happened in the past, that they are God's masterpiece. I like to remind my students that, you know, like you live in 2020 because God determined that we needed you in 2020. And it doesn't mean that they're not broken, and it doesn't mean that they don't have things that God doesn't need to work on them in, but they are God's masterpiece, and they, they need to embrace this identity of God's love for them so that as they experience the love of Christ, they are then transformed to become more and more like Christ. And I think that this narrative of seeing ourselves as God's masterpiece is a good way to speak into this narrative of shame, the story of shame that we have in our culture. And as we look to build faith that lasts, I think we need to be aware that many of our people are coming out of an identity of shame. And so what happens when we're living under shame, our reaction is to say that we don't want to have anything to do that causes us shame. And I think this is a big part of the reason why um, we've seen more and more people walking away from walking away from church, walking away from programs, because we've created this, this system of expectations that, and, and if you really want to be a good Christian, you need to be like this. And so when people can't live up to those unrealistic expectations, um, they walk away because it causes shame in them. And yet what if we went to them and said, you know, come and meet Jesus who loves you and then you know, we'll worry about the other stuff afterwards because God will do transformation. That's what God is in the business of doing. But first, let's remind them of, of who they can be in Christ and how they are God's masterpiece. And so as we think about resilient discipleship, there's a few things that I want us to consider. I mentioned this book, Faith for Exiles, and the whole thesis of this book is building a faith that lasts, building resilient discipleship. And, and the first piece of what they say here is that we need to help students, in order to have a faith that lasts, we need to help them experience Jesus. And so then they further break that down so that we can have a better understanding of what that means to experience Jesus. And so as they were doing their study, they, they looked at young adults from across North America, and they were looking at students whose faith had endured through adulthood. They were looking at students who's, who were still following Jesus 10 years later, and they said, what are the things that made a difference? And so these are some of the things that they observed. They recognized that they experienced Jesus together. 
that faith wasn't just about something that was personal and individual, but it was something that they did in community. And this is a big part of my story too. I grew up in a, in a small rural church in Nova Scotia where there were three kids in the church in the Sunday school, one of them being my sister. And so really tiny church. And, and, and this church is on the verge now of, of probably closing their doors and, and stopping to meet because it, it, it's just the, the story that they're, they're in. But this is a church that really helped me see the love of Christ. And this was a church that loved me and my sister. And both my sister and I are still following Jesus. And we looked to that small rural church that we grew up in that, you know, didn't really have a fantastic kids ministry and didn't really have a youth ministry, but they knew how to love us and they took good care of us and they knew, they knew everything about us and they really showed what it looks like to experience Jesus together. And so regardless of your role in your church this morning, you have kids and you have youth here. Do you know their names? Do you know their stories? Talk to them. Get to know them. Help them to see that it's not just Pastor Micah and the youth leaders and the Kingdom Kids leaders that are involved in their lives, but they are loved by an entire church of people who care for them and want to make sure that they're following Jesus in 10 years. So we need to help love people into loving Jesus and welcome them and embrace them. The authors also tell us to navigate by the true north of Christ. And what this means is that they're calling us to redirect people from simply like wearing the Christian t-shirts and, and listening to the Christmas or Christian music and doing all the Christian stuff to actually encountering Jesus that's in the Gospels. Sometimes we have a very superficial understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. And we think, well, if I'm here on a Sunday morning, if I come to church, if I go to youth group, and if I have the Christian t-shirt and I've been to Tidal Impact and the things that we do, then that's enough. But what we're finding is that that's not enough to sustain our youth into young adulthood. And so we need to help them realize that it's not just about the experiences and about wearing the Jesus brand, but it's about really encountering the Jesus that's in the gospel, seeing his heart for the marginalized, seeing his heart for, um, for all people and, and, and committing to following him. The authors also remind us that it's important to ask the big questions of life and creating space where questions can be asked. Our youth are asking the questions, they're asking questions around identity, who am I? Or they're asking questions around purpose, what, like why am I here? What is my role in this world? They're asking questions about how faith and technology connect. They're asking questions about sexuality and gender. And we need to create space in the church where these questions can be asked and they can find their answers in Jesus and recognize that Jesus steps into those questions and there are answers for those questions. And we don't need to be afraid of those questions, but we need to really say that, yeah, Jesus helps us wrestle through those questions. And this is the place where we want answers to be found because we know that if we don't answer those questions, if we don't create space for those questions to be asked and wrestled through, then they'll get it in the schools. They'll get it through Google. Um, there are ways that they will find the answers they're looking for but they're not rooted in Jesus, and that's our role. So how do we create space where questions can be asked? Another thing I found really interesting is that the authors remind us don't, not to rush a decision to follow Jesus. As they were looking at resilient disciples, young adults whose faith had lasted into a young adulthood, one of the things that they discovered was that these were not individuals who had been baptized at ages four, five, and six who had made a decision to follow Jesus. They actually waited later in life. Um, they were 10, 11, 12, 13, and they were a little bit older when they had a better handle on, on what they were signing up for. And I think that's a good reminder. Sometimes we get 
we just want to, we've got a, a, a kid and we think, okay, this kid's following Jesus, let's baptize them. And like, this is, this is great discipleship. But actually the research is showing that, you know, maybe our tendency is to rush into things too quickly. And it's okay to take a longer process and help students understand more before they make that decision to be baptized. And just because someone is 12 or 13 and they haven't been baptized yet, that doesn't mean that they're never going to follow Jesus. It might actually mean that they're more likely to stay following Jesus as they get older. So not to rush a decision to follow Jesus. They also remind us it's important to get close and to stay close to Jesus and to help our students and our children develop a relationship with prayer, to develop a relationship with Christ through prayer, recognizing that it's in these moments of prayer that we build intimacy with Christ. And so that's not just something that happens on Sunday mornings or in our youth programs, but this is daily intimacy with Christ that happens through prayer. So how do we build those rhythms? How do we build those habits so that they experience real intimacy with Christ? And this is the role of the whole church. You know, I think there our churches are filled with people who love praying and who have these great ministries of prayer. How do we do better at involving our children and our youth into those ministries so that they develop um, these rhythms and these habits of prayer. And, and the last thing they point out as we're talking about experiencing Jesus is they say church going is important, but church going alone does not bring intimacy with Christ. We need to have those rhythms. We need to be in community. We need to be coming to church, but just coming to church on a Sunday morning does not, is not the final marker of discipleship. And so we tend to oversimplify Christianity to just being about decisions and, and raising hands at youth events. But we need to really be pursuing intimacy and, and helping students realize that they need to have rhythms and habits and patterns that sustain their faith beyond just simply coming to church. And yet recognizing that church going is important and it is vital to have that community. But it's got to be more and deeper um, than just that. So these are all things to think about as we think about how do we nurture um, a resilient faith in Christ? How do we nurture resilient discipleship, faith that lasts? So as we finish, I want to leave us with these couple of questions. And I think it's important to wrestle through these questions. As we want to have discipleship that lasts in ourselves and in our students and in our children, we need to wrestle with the questions around identity and uh, both Jesus' identity and our identity. So who do you say Jesus is? Is Jesus simply the slogan you wear on your t-shirt? Um, or is Jesus your Lord? Is he your friend? Like, who do you say Jesus is? And then what are the implications for that in your life? And then who does Jesus say that you really are? If we want to speak into this culture of shame that we're raising our children and youth in, out of, we need to understand who Jesus says that we really are too. And be able to share our stories and share our brokenness and share our triumphs. Um, so that we can tell people who Jesus says that we really are. So I leave you with these questions. And again, I thank you. I continue to thank you for your investment in the lives of, of students that I work with in New Brunswick. And uh, But I encourage you to be thinking about how you, as a congregation, build resilient faith in your youth and your children. So I want to pray for you. And um, so let's pray together. Jesus, I'm grateful for Summerside Baptist, and I thank you for uh, their ministry with students. I thank you for their ministry with, with children. I thank you that this is a, um, and so I thank you for the ones that are in their midst, and so may they continue to grow in love for the kids and the youth, 
And may they continue to see, um, be creative in terms of how they can build resilient discipleship. And may all of us ask the question, how, what can we do to help students and youth and children still be following Jesus in 10 years? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.